I said to him very emphatically and very definitely that an order be issued immediately under his signature to shoot to kill any arsonist or anyone with a Molotov cocktail in their hand in Chicago to fire a building because they're potential murderers and to issue a police order to shoot to maim or cripple anyone looting any stores in our city and above all the crime of arson is to me the most hideous and worst crime of any and should be dealt with in this fashion i was disappointed to know that every policeman out on the beat was supposed to use his own decision and this decision evidently was his in my opinion he should have had instructions to shoot arsonists and to shoot chicago looters. 1968 it's a few days after the civil unrest that followed the murder of martin luther king jr and mayor richard j daly is admitting he issued a shoot to kill order to his police force to quell the riots daly is a powerful man master of the cook county democratic machine a kingmaker in the national democratic party and a big city mayor who built a reputation on maintaining law and order but about 50 years before Daly made these remarks, when he was 17 years old, there was a riot in his own neighborhood, a mob action against the black residents who lived a few blocks away from his home. His neighbors took part in countless acts of assault, arson, and even murder during Chicago's 1919 race riot. Daly and his family have always kept quiet about what exactly he was doing that week in late July. It's been a question that hung in the air for decades in the city, one that's never been answered. Did Richard J. Daly himself participate in a race riot? This is a conspiracy you can believe in. This podcast is about conspiracies, plots, unusual crimes, ones that might have actually happened. But this episode, what we're really looking at is a rumor, a rumor that's been around for a long time. Did Richard J. Daley take part in the 1919 race riot in Chicago? Historians and everyday Chicagoans have speculated about this for decades. Daly was a towering figure in 20th century Chicago. He ruled the city's democratic machine. He was mayor of Chicago from 1955 to 1976. That's one of the longest serving mayors in the city's history. And he was the head of a family that still wields influence in Chicago business and politics. In fact, the record for longest serving mayor was broken by his own son. But Daly was also mayor during the turbulent 1960s. You may know him as the mayor who was responsible for the aggressive police response outside of the 1968 Democratic Convention. 
And although he was very careful to cultivate the image of Chicago as a progressive, modern American city, he was openly hostile to black radical organizations like the Black Panthers, and he privately sabotaged Martin Luther King's campaign to integrate housing in Chicago. Daly's record on race relations was not stellar. So it's not much of a surprise that the rumor of Daly's involvement in the 1919 riot persists. The outbreak of racist violence that summer was a major event in the city's history, and many incidents happened basically just outside the door of the Daly home. At the time of the riot, Daly was at about the age of many of the perpetrators, and we know for a fact a good number of his friends did take part. But Daly himself, his family, and his close friends, none of them have ever admitted that he had any involvement, or they openly deny it. Daly himself actually never had anything to say about the riot at all. He was careful never to talk about it, or where he was, or what he was doing during those bloody days in the so-called Red Summer of 1919. Now, I don't want to disappoint you, but I should tell you up front, we cannot prove one way or the other if he was involved. I will tell you what I think he did, based on my own speculation, and also based on what historians and people that knew Daly knew about him, knew about his upbringing and his surroundings at around the time of the riots. I should also warn listeners that this episode does describe some details of the race riot in 1919. That was an event that included lynchings, beatings, arson, and a lot of other acts of racist violence, so if you don't want to listen to that being described, you're welcome to turn off the podcast. Personally, I first heard about Daly's possible involvement in the 1919 riot about 10 years ago when I read the book Boss by Mike Royko, which is a great book. I highly recommend it. Much of this episode is based on that book, as well as American Pharaoh by Elizabeth Taylor and Adam Cohen. I recommend both of these books, actually, if you want to get a good understanding of Richard J. Daly and politics in Chicago during the 20th century. I also did a lot of digging in the official State of Illinois report on the riot, published in 1922. This report was from the Chicago Commission on Race Relations, a board equally made up of white and black community leaders appointed by the governor at the time. It's a very good source for information on the riots, based on hundreds of interviews with witnesses, court depositions, and field investigations. It also contains extensive background on what the city was like at the beginning of the 20th century, as well as possible causes of the riot. I was honestly a little surprised at how much information was in the report, and I recommend looking into it if you want to learn more about the Chicago 1919 riot. Before I get into speculation about Daly, before I get into the riots themselves, I think it's important that I tell you a little bit about the setting. The incidents of violence that year happened mostly, but not entirely, on the city's south side. The events of July and August 1919 are referred to as rioting, but really, for the most part, it was a pogrom. That's an explosion of violence directed at a persecuted ethnic group, in this case, African Americans. In 1919, on the south side, most everything west of Wentworth Avenue was almost entirely white. Everything east was majority black. And this was a condition of settlement enforced on black Chicagoans 
by everyday acts of violence on anyone who tried to move into the white part of town, but as well as actions from a segregationist real estate industry. In many ways, our story is the tale of two parts of the city. Bridgeport, the white neighborhood where Daly grew up, and directly east of that, the Black Belt, the part of the south side where most of the black community lived. Let's start with the Black Belt. This was not one single neighborhood, but a chain of connected neighborhoods that ran from a little bit south of the downtown loop to 95th Street, and from Wentworth Avenue to Lake Michigan. As I said before, housing discrimination and outright violence largely confined African Americans to specific parts of town, and the Black Belt was mostly it. From 1900 to 1920, the black population of the city increased by almost 140%, and most of them moved here. This period was part of what's called the Great Migration, a huge movement of African Americans from the mostly rural South to cities in the North and West, both to escape a heavily enforced racial caste structure in the South, and also to find job opportunities in industries up North. This is a really interesting period in American history, and if you want to learn more about it, I highly recommend a book called The Warmth of Other Suns by Isabel Wilkerson. Black migrants came to Chicago to escape Jim Crow. But, as you might expect, racism obviously exists up north, too. For one, they were restricted to living almost entirely in one part of the city. The Black Belt soon became crowded, housing became scarce, and the poverty rate was high. But there were some spots that were home to a burgeoning black middle class, such as the Woodlawn neighborhood. Also, the restrictive housing covenants and racism from white-owned businesses meant that the black belt had to become self-sufficient. Neighborhoods like Bronzeville soon became home to several black-owned businesses. African Americans in the black belt owned and operated their own shops, restaurants, doctor's offices, and even their own hospital, Provident Hospital, which was founded and run by black doctors, four black patients, and existed for over a century. Most of the migrants that came to Chicago in the early 20th century lived all of their lives in the rural South. Joining the workforce in Chicago meant new skills and new opportunities. Tens of thousands of black laborers got jobs in the steel mills on the far south side and in the stockyards just west of the Black Belt. This brought them side by side with white workers, on the job, in streetcars and trains, racial tensions began to rise. Those tensions came from the white part of the city. Places like Bridgeport, just west of the northern part of the Black Belt. Richard J. Daly was from Bridgeport, and his background was similar to the rest of the neighborhood. Working class, Catholic, and Irish. The neighborhood was initially settled by Irish immigrants in the 1830s, laborers who dug the Illinois and Michigan Canal. By the late 1800s, some Italians, Poles, Germans, and a good number of Lithuanians also moved in. Life for many of the residents of Bridgeport revolved around institutions such as the local trade unions, the Democratic Party, and the Catholic Church. Like many of the residents of the Black Belt, a lot of white Bridgeporters in the early 20th century worked in the stockyards, herding cattle, butchering cows and hogs, and packing meat. But at the turn of the century, white working-class Catholics from immigrant backgrounds were starting to gain more influence in city politics. I'll use Daly's early life in Bridgeport as an example here, because his upbringing was pretty typical for the neighborhood. 
and it could give us some insight into his relationship with the riots. Daly was born in 1902 and lived in a house at 3602 South Low. His father was a metal worker, and his mother was heavily involved in managing functions at the nearby Catholic Church, Nativity of Our Lord, where young Richard attended grammar school. After grade school, he spent a few years learning typing and bookkeeping at a Catholic vocational school, the De La Salle Institute. This school still exists today, and was considered an avenue for above-average students from the Irish working class to get a foothold in more middle-class office jobs. It's also located just on the other side of the racial divide in the Black Belt. Still, the school was all white, and Daly went in and out of school and back home as quickly as he could. There's no evidence he ever mingled much with kids of other races. Another strong influence on Daly's youth was his neighborhood club, the Hamburg Social and Athletic Club. I'd like to take a minute to explain this a bit before we get into the details of the riot, because it's pretty important when we consider Daly's involvement in that event. Athletic clubs were a key component of social and political life for young people in places like Bridgeport at the time. The authors of American Pharaoh described them as part social circle, part political organization, part street gang. I'm going to make the argument that there were more of a traditional street gang in a bit, but what Daly did as a member of the Hamburg Club at the time was manage the basketball team. He was known as a good athlete, but he was also bookish, hardworking, and a young man of few words. The Hamburg Club, in addition to sponsoring dances and hosting neighborhood basketball games, was tied to the local alderman, Joseph McDonough. Most of the athletic clubs had a political sponsor and they would spend their free time drumming up votes for them, and occasionally engaging in violence with the athletic clubs of rival patrons. This was considered normal for Chicago elections in that period. In fact, the term, politics ain't beanbag, was coined by a member of one of the Southside's athletic clubs at the time. Another role that the athletic clubs served was keeping outsiders out of the neighborhood. This meant whites of other ethnicities, but it especially meant African Americans. In fact, in 1918, the poet Langston Hughes himself was assaulted by an Irish street gang after wandering past the white side of Wentworth Avenue. Historians have been unable to confirm if the Hamburg Club did it, but their turf was in the area where Langston Hughes probably passed through. As I said in the beginning, we have no concrete evidence that Richard J. Daly ever participated in acts like this, common as they were among his friends. But in the summer of 1919, these regular, routine acts of assault turned into a week of arson, murder, and mob violence. July 27, 1919 was a Sunday, and particularly hot. Both black and white Chicagoans headed to the beaches of Lake Michigan to cool off. The beaches on the south side were unofficially segregated, like much of the city. The beach entrance at 27th Street was for blacks, and the beach at 29th Street was for whites. There had been some fights breaking out on the shore that day, as some whites accused four black men of being on, quote, their part of the beach. This squabble escalated into stone throwing. But 17-year-old Eugene Williams was oblivious to it. He was enjoying a swim in the water, when he suddenly drifted south over the imaginary line that marked the beginning of the white part of Lake Michigan. 
but Eugene Williams was black. Now, some of the white people on the beach began aiming stones at him. As the rocks flew around him, Eugene clung to a wooden railroad tie in the water. As a white boy began swimming towards him, Eugene let go and tried to swim away to safety, but he disappeared beneath the surface. He didn't come back up. People on the beach, both white and black, began desperately to search for him beneath the water. Several black witnesses pointed out one white suspect in particular who had been throwing rocks at Eugene just before he drowned. They called on a white police officer who was on the scene to arrest him. He didn't. Instead, police arrested a black man who had nothing to do with the drowning of Eugene Williams based on the complaints of a white man. This was the final indignity that black Chicagoans were willing to tolerate. The Chicago Commission on Race Relations would later point to the police response to Eugene Williams' death as the inciting incident of the riot. For the next week, the south side of Chicago was in a state of civil unrest. After the death of Eugene Williams, rumors of a black uprising took hold of the white parts of Chicago. Those rumors led to a week of firebombs, lynching, and assault. White mobs attacked streetcars carrying black workers to the stockyards, beating any black rider they could find inside. Black homes and businesses were targeted for window smashing, shooting, or outright arson. Over a thousand black Chicagoans would be homeless due to fires by the end of the week. What struck me researching this riot was how organized some of the violence was. One of the more common acts of violence during the riot was raiding. That was when whites would drive their cars through the main streets of the Black Belt and shoot guns or throw firebombs at buildings. Some of the athletic clubs from white Southside neighborhoods would send trucks full of rioters to break police barricades, almost as if they were sending troops into battle. It's true that some acts of violence were seemingly random and impulsive, but much of it was orchestrated and planned. The Chicago police were unable and in many cases unwilling to stop it. Within a few days, the governor of Illinois had to call in the National Guard to quell the rioters. When the violence died down on August 3rd, 38 people were dead, 25 black and 15 white. Over 500 people were injured, most of them black. Most, though not all, of the white deaths can be attributed to self-defense. Residents of the Black Belt were being subjected to waves of deadly violence, but many of them fought back and did so effectively. Keep in mind, this is shortly after the end of World War I, and a lot of people living in the Black Belt now had military experience and training. One such person was Army Lieutenant Lewis Washington, who was assaulted and shot in the leg by a mob of white men when he was leaving a theater near Hyde Park. Washington fatally stabbed a white teenager who attacked him, and then black sharpshooters in nearby houses scared the mob off with rifle fire. Washington would survive, and his actions were later deemed justified self-defense. The sharpshooters, however, would be arrested by Chicago police. Residents of the Black Belt also organized armed neighborhood defense to protect lives and property. Lewis Washington was an officer in the 8th Illinois Infantry, an all-black regiment based out of the Bronzeville neighborhood. Veterans and active soldiers from the regiment formed into an unofficial defense force against the white rioters who made their way into Bronzeville. Now, after the smoke cleared from the 1919 race riot, local and state officials 
such as those on the Council on Race Relations, investigated the conditions that caused the riot. There were a lot of culprits. Police officers often allowed white residents to commit assault or arson right under their noses. In a few cases, they even participated themselves. City officials also knew that housing was a huge problem for the Black Belt. But there was little that they seemed willing to do about it. Lack of maintenance from the city meant streets were in poor condition, and alleyways were full of uncollected trash. Plus, the Chicago Real Estate Board was allowed to enact an official policy of racial segregation in 1917, expelling any developer who sold property on a white block to a black person. This restricted black residents largely to the black belt, and as more migrants moved in, that meant neighborhoods became overcrowded and underserved. I want to take a minute to talk about one other possible cause, because I think a lot of people look at events like this from a century ago, and they assume that the guilty parties were just products of their time, almost like that's an excuse. Before researching the Chicago Commission on Race Relations, I had often heard that trade unions in the stockyards were a major source of racist violence in the 1919 riot. I had assumed that this was true, since it is based on some fact. The unions in the stockyards were traditionally made up of people much like the Daly family, working class, Catholic, and white. Although the American Federation of Labor, the national alliance that represented the unions in the stockyards, officially opposed racist discrimination, it was part of the much less radical wing of the labor movement in America, and there was little that they were willing or able to do to stop discrimination at the local level. Now, business owners in the stockyards took advantage of this. If white union locals refused to organize their black co-workers, those workers could be used as replacement labor to break strikes. Obviously, this situation benefited nobody but the owners. They could pay black workers a far lower wage than the unionized whites. But the understandable harsh feelings toward their racist white co-workers led many black Chicagoans to distrust unions. Contrary to everything I have heard about the 1919 riot, this situation did not last long. After the failure of the 1904 stockyard strike, the mostly white unions realized that without the organization of black workers, too, they were dead in the water. They and a cadre of black organizers made considerable effort over the next 15 years. By 1919, a majority of black workers in the stockyards were now union members themselves, and union membership among black workers was now at about the same proportion as that among whites. Majority black union locals, like Local 651 of the Amalgamated Meat Cutters, even became institutions in the black belt and nerve centers of black labor activism. Racism in the labor movement certainly remained, but the relationship between black workers and organized labor by 1919 was quite different than what it had been just a few years before. As it turns out, most attacks on black residents near the stockyards happened along streetcar lines, where white assailants blocked the trolley wires to assault black riders, many of whom were on the way to work in the same stockyards the white residents of Bridgeport worked in. These white men were often beating their own union brothers and sisters. The black Marxist historian C.L.R. James commented on the Chicago riots 20 years later, claiming that, far from being a cause of the riots, the unions in the stockyards were one of the few sources of cooperation between black and white residents of Chicago. He praised the Stockyards Labor Council, a militant, 
integrated coalition of unions at the stockyards formed in 1917. The Stockyards Labor Council had, just weeks before the riot, organized a massive protest of over 30,000 workers against police presence in the stockyards. Both white and black members of the unions in the Labor Council often saw police as agents of the employer, and during the time of the riots, both white and black union stockyard workers were already on strike to protest police presence in their workplace. After the riots broke out, union members mobilized to give aid to their black comrades who had been wounded or made homeless by the mobs. CLR James notes that although police attempted to incite violence among them, among the 35,000 members of the Stockyards Labor Council, there is only one recorded incident. Now I'm saying all this not to clear the unions of the time of any wrongdoing. There was still plenty of institutional racism there. But to put it out of anyone's heads that the attitudes of the rioters were just a product of their time. The Stockyards Labor Council is just one example of many where white Chicagoans at the time helped their black neighbors and condemned the racist mob violence at the time it was going on. And obviously, black Chicagoans in 1919 certainly were aware that what was happening was wrong. The events of 1919 shocked a lot of people at the time it happened, and readers from the modern era might be surprised to see how strongly some white people in the early 20th century condemned the violence. People knew that it was bad at the time. The fact that it took place in the past is no excuse for the rioters' actions. And there is certainly no excuse for how the athletic clubs conducted themselves. In fact, the Chicago Commission on Race Relations put the chief blame for the intensity of the riots on the athletic clubs, saying that if it weren't for them, quote, it is doubtful if the riot ever would have gone beyond the first clash. I mentioned earlier that aspects of the riot appeared to be organized and planned. The commission found that much of what appeared to be random acts of mob violence were in fact started by a small nucleus of leaders, and these leaders were more often than not key members of the Southside's white athletic clubs. It helps to think of the athletic clubs as more of a street gang than a civic organization. It's true that they played at least some role as a social club, hosting parties, playing sports and holding meetings, but you can also say this for a lot of street gangs that operate in Chicago today. The chief role of the athletic club was to preserve the character of the neighborhood as they saw it, and in the 1919 riot, that meant carrying out acts of racist violence. Some of the athletic clubs are called out several times by name in the commission's report. One of them is a club called Reagan's Colts from Canaryville, a white neighborhood that's just south of Bridgeport. Witnesses saw them patrolling 47th Street with guns, yelling racial slurs, and breaking through police barriers with trucks full of rioters, and in one bizarre instance, donning blackface and burning homes in a Polish neighborhood near the stockyards. This was believed by many residents to be a deliberate attempt to stir up hatred among the Polish community for their black neighbors. It does not appear that the ruse worked. Most historical sources still refer to groups like this as athletic clubs, but as a foreman of the grand jury that investigated the riot put it, quote, I think that they are athletic only with their fists and brass knuckles and guns. So what does this mean for Richard J. Daly and his role in the 1919 riot? We know that he was a member of one of these clubs. Unfortunately, 
The Commission on Race Relations seems to imply that they were a lesser player in the riot and it only mentions them a few times. But it does mention them. Police are quoted saying that the neighborhood patrolled by the Hamburgs is tough. And in another instance, a state militia commander who was brought in to quell the riots calls out the Hamburgs specifically as a group who, quote, don't like to be controlled. We also have contemporary historians who point out the Hamburg Athletic Club's role in the 1919 riots. Dr. Peter Cole, a historian of 20th century America from Western Illinois University, has led neighborhood historical tours to commemorate the victims of the 1919 riot. In a piece on his tour in Belt Magazine, Cole says, quote, It's been well documented that the Hamburg Athletic Club were the ones who basically escalated the riots on that first night. To this day, no one really knows what Richard Daly was doing during those times. A lot of us have strong opinions about what he was doing, but he always refused to answer questions about his role in 1919. And that's why it's still just a rumor. Daly not only never talked about it, he refused to answer questions about it when asked directly. His supporters always claimed that he had no part in the riot, that he was more of a quiet kid, or that he was probably home studying. Come on. He was there. I think I can give a good argument for why I believe that. First, in the Chicago Commission on Race Relations report, you'll find a map showing every documented incident of the riot. It appears that most of the violence happened along the boundary between the white and black neighborhoods near Wentworth Avenue. But some attacks happened along streetcar lines and major thoroughfares in Bridgeport, like Halstead Avenue or 35th Street, where white gangs would beat black pedestrians or stop streetcars and assault the black passengers who were on their way to work. A cluster of these incidents happened near the intersections of 35th and Wallace, Pershing and Wallace, or 35th and Halstead. These are all very close to where Daly lived, at the intersection of 36th and Lowe. Some of it would have happened within sight or within earshot of his home. I know this because I know the area pretty well. I used to live half a block away at 36 and Union for a couple years. It is impossible that Richard J. Daly did not at least witness some of the violence. There's also the issue of what we know about his role in the athletic club at the time. At age 17, Daly was an active member of the Hamburgs. He managed the basketball team. He probably knew or went to school with most or all of the members. The Hamburg Club's building, which still exists today, by the way, it serves as a neighborhood voting location, is just about a block away from Daly's childhood home. In 1924, Daly was elected president of the Hamburg Club, and he would hold that office for 15 years. The athletic club was a major focus of his young life. Another clue to what role the Hamburg Club had in the 1919 riot are the public statements of the club's most prominent member at the time, Bridgeport Alderman Joseph McDonough. McDonough was something of a political patron of the Hamburgs, and as I said, it was typical of these athletic clubs to have one. Politicians would use the gang members as unofficial precinct captains to drum up votes on election day, and in return, he might look the other way if any of the local street toughs got in trouble. But during the 1919 riots, Joseph McDonough was very publicly inciting white violence. He spread dangerous rumors in the press, such as black Chicagoans storing up ammunition for guerrilla warfare, 
or claiming that he saw police tell white residents that they were unable to protect them from their black neighbors. He also told the police chief during a city council meeting, quote, Unless something is done at once, I am going to advise my people to arm themselves for protection. McDonough was something of a mentor to Richard J. Daly at this time. Only a few years later, Daly would be working for him in the Alderman City Council office. When McDonough was promoted to Cook County Treasurer, Daly worked as his assistant. Daly kept close ties to the member of the Hamburg Club for his entire life. At the time of the riot, he was a prominent member and would be elected president a few years later. His political patron incited riot action in 1919 when Daly was 17 years old, which is about the age of many of the perpetrators listed in the commission's report. The report also names the Hamburg Club as one of the athletic clubs involved in the riot. It is very difficult for me to believe that Richard J. Daly was at home studying when the riot occurred. If that's not enough, we also have evidence of racist statements that Daly made in private as mayor when he was an older man. In one instance, a nun who worked on the west side came to visit Daly when he was mayor, appealing to him to enforce building codes on landlords and to do something about high rates of lead poisoning in the black community. By the way, this is still a major problem in some parts of Chicago. She tried to tell Mayor Daly about the high rate of infant mortality among black Chicagoans, about the lack of good parks in the neighborhood she did social work in. Before she could finish, Daly cut her off, saying, Sister, you and I came from the same background. Grandparents came from nothing. Houses as old on the west side. But the people there took care of them, worked hard, kept the neighborhood clean, and looked after their children. Let me tell you something about those people. They should lift themselves by their bootstraps like our grandparents did, take care of their children, work hard, and take care of their houses. Those were Daly's own words, according to the nun who met with them. In another episode in the early 60s, Richard Daly's son Bill came home from his Jesuit high school complaining about one of the textbooks the priest teaching his class gave. The book was The Crisis in Black and White, which took strong anti-racist positions on contemporary issues and had critical passages about the Daly administration in it. Bill Daly protested the use of the book in class and refused to take part in an oral book report about it. When the mayor was called in for a conference with the priest, Richard Daly took his son's side, claiming, Half that book is false, and... I'll make sure he reads those books and gives you the material right back at you the way it is. Bill Daly, by the way, is still active in politics here. He was briefly Obama's White House Chief of Staff, and he also made an unsuccessful run for mayor in 2019. Another instance of Daly's bigotry, this time towards Jews, was caught on national television. During the 1968 Democratic Convention, as police attacked protesters outside the Conrad Hilton Hotel, Abe Rivikoff, a Jewish senator from Connecticut, spoke to endorse George McGovern for president and denounced the brutal tactics of Chicago police. Richard Daly was furious. He stood up and screamed at the podium while cameras rolled. According to lip readers, what he said to Ribikoff was, quote, Fuck you, you Jew son of a bitch. You lousy motherfucker. Go home. Now, unfortunately, episodes like this from Daly's later life, as well as what we know about the Hamburg Athletic Club at the time, are all that we have to go on. 
since neither Daly himself nor anybody who knew him at the time made any statements about what he was doing, all we have is a rumor. But unlike the rumors that swept through the white south side in 1919, this one might be true. Knowing that the athletic clubs played a prominent role in the riots, and knowing that the Hamburg club was among them, and knowing that Daly was a high-ranking member within that gang, it's hard for me to believe that he was sitting at home studying for an entire week in the summer of 1919 as a race riot stormed directly outside of his house. And if Daly did take part, what did he do? We can't answer that, but I can guess what an athletic but shy and soft-spoken young man who was also part of a racist street gang might have been doing. A small section of the Chicago Commission on Race Relations report is devoted to the character of mobs that formed during the riots. The crowds typically started as aimless groups of people, usually spectators that could gather in sizes of hundreds of people. Most of them didn't view themselves as active participants in mob violence, although they were. The report describes groups of instigators who formed a nucleus of mob action. Often, these were members of the athletic clubs, who would have been at about the age Daly was. Through shouting racial slurs or pointing out black people on the street, they could whip the crowd into a frenzy. Usually, only a few diehard criminals would lead the actual violence. But once one person starts, it gives the crowd permission to participate, or to follow, or to egg on the violence. My best guess, Daly was in that crowd. Now from what we know of his political career, he was not much one for direct confrontation. But if we believe he participated, and I believe he did, it was probably following the lead of his more hot-headed friends in the Hamburg Club. When he would become mayor, of course, Daly made sure to keep the racism less explicit than it was in his younger years in Bridgeport. Daly had to sell Chicago to the world. It was the city of progress, the host of foreign dignitaries, party conventions, and even at one point the Queen of England on a royal visit. As far as Daly was concerned, racism did not exist in Chicago. That was a southern problem, and Chicago was a modern metropolis. To prove how modern it was, Daly spearheaded a host of urban renewal projects. One of them was the Dan Ryan Expressway, 14 lanes of freeway traffic driving straight through the south side to downtown. It also happens to separate Bronzeville from Bridgeport, as Wentworth Avenue once did. Bridgeport today has changed a good bit. It's no longer majority white, for one. Immigrants from Latin America and China changed that decades ago. But some of the ugliness of old Bridgeport remains. In 1997, a black teenager named Leonard Clark was beaten into a coma by a group of older white teenagers for the simple transgression of riding his bike a few blocks into a white part of Bridgeport. Clark would fortunately survive the attack. There's also another incident from this year that shows the uglier side of Bridgeport. During the wave of anti-police brutality protests that followed the murder of George Floyd, Groups of mostly white Bridgeporters began to form unofficial neighborhood watch units that seemed to many of their uneasy neighbors to be racist gang patrols, not unlike the ones from the old athletic clubs in 1919. I personally have seen footage of the neighborhood patrols. They were almost all white, carrying clubs, bats, and improvised weapons, 
many of them visibly intoxicated, and wandering around 31st Street and Halstead, in open view of the police who allowed them to be there. I have many friends who live in Bridgeport, and I heard stories about these men interrogating, harassing, and following anyone driving or walking into the neighborhood. They were checking for IDs to prove residents, and even opened fire hydrants to block the streets from outsiders. It appeared to be a highly coordinated, organized effort. Newspaper reports claim that they followed any person, Bridgeport resident or not, who walked to or from the direction of a protest in Bronzeville. One interracial couple was followed and menaced by the gang for several blocks. Understandably, many people in Bridgeport drew parallels between these gangs and the racial violence of 1919. A group of Bridgeport residents organized to confront their local aldermen to denounce the vigilantes and demand that they stand down. He reluctantly released a statement calling for the vigilantes to remain at their homes. That alderman, by the way, is Patrick Daly Thompson, the grandson of Richard J. Daly. Bridgeport has changed a lot over the years. Some things stay the same. This has been Conspiracy You Can Believe In. Thanks for listening. Check back in two weeks when I'll be covering Bleeding Kansas and the Lecompton Constitution Conspiracy. Conspiracy.